Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy, Sirius XM 104. Welcome back to the Conversation Hour 2 here on uh, Thursday, October 10th, 2013. As usual, no shortage of issues to talk about, especially with the government shutdown, the debt ceiling debacle, everything that's happening in Washington, D.C. sometimes seems like our country is coming unraveling. We'll talk about those issues uh, more later on in the program. And in uh, Hour 3, we're going to have two former DEA agents debating the drug war. But right now, I want to get to my next guest, who's a friend of the program and been on a number of times. Uh, he's a graduate and former uh, teacher at West Point Military Academy. He served in Vietnam for a year. He is uh, 23 years in the Army uh, and uh, retired as an Army colonel. Now he's a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. He has a very, very important, in my opinion, new book, and everybody should go get this book and read all of it. It's called Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. It's out now. You've got to get it. Professor Andrew Basevich is joining us. How are you? Welcome back. Oh, thanks very much for having me on the show, Pete. It's good to have you back on the show. Uh, this is a book that needed to be written and that needed to be written by someone like you with your credentials because uh, otherwise I don't think it would be taken uh, as seriously. Tell us uh, why you chose to write this book, which uh, is not obviously making you too many friends. I can't imagine you're getting to invited to a lot of cocktail parties in Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I mean, for some considerable amount of time, uh, I've been bothered by what I think is the essential fraudulence of the relationship between the American people and American soldiers, uh, which is strong on symbolism. You know, thank you for your service. We all support the troops. Uh, but it's been mighty thin when it comes to substance. My, my view is that the American people have allowed Washington to abuse the troops by committing them to unnecessary wars, to wars that have been mismanaged, to wars that are not ending successfully, uh, and that that's wrong. So that we, the people, have failed in what ought to be our responsibility to the troops we profess to care about. Was it at one point different? And if so, when did that change? It was different, I think, uh, in this sense. Uh, up until Vietnam, the tradition of the citizen soldier uh, formed the basis of the American military system. And I, I don't want to bore you with too much detail, but the bottom line is that when the country felt itself to be in danger uh, and needed a big army, Washington turned to the people to raise up a citizen army to go do what needed to be done, whether it was to preserve the Union in the 1860s or to defeat Hitler and Imperial Japan in the 1940s. Uh, and so war meant that, in, in our democracy, that the people would be engaged in the enterprise. That system collapsed in Vietnam. Uh, and in effect, in, in the wake of Vietnam, the American people abandoned that tradition of the citizen soldier. Richard Nixon ratified that abandonment by creating what we choose to call the all-volunteer force, but which is really a professional military. The founders of our republic would have called it a standing army, and they, they viewed a standing army as a danger to our republic. So, so the American people disengaged from their military. The, the army became not America's army, but Washington's army. Uh, and Washington set out to do whatever it wanted to do and, and this, with the army, and this became particularly evident, I think, in the wake of 9-11, when the George W. Bush administration with great 
arrogance and confidence, uh, declared a global war on terrorism and sent the troops off to Afghanistan, where they've not returned since, and sent the troops off to Iraq in a, in a, a pointless war that cost us, that cost us dearly. And, and what have the American people done in the face of this? Well, uh, the, the people continually recite how much uh, they support the troops, but in fact, we've stood by as spectators while this abuse of, the, of our troops has occurred. That's, that's, I think, is what gets gets under my craw and uh, explains why I wrote the book. Talking to Professor Andrew Basevich, the new book uh, is, I, I think, you're, uh, probably your your best work, and I loved you. uh, uh, your previous books. But I think that this is kind of such an important book and such an important time to write a book like this. It's called Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. Uh, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, uh, you, you're talking a lot about Washington. You're talking. You mentioned Nixon. Uh, what, what about us? What about the public? What about the voters? Well, what I about think, our apathy? Know, and what about the media? Yeah, it, oh, I think the media very much has been has been part of this. Has has not been sufficiently uh, cognizant of what or or cr- asking critical questions about what does support of the troops uh, mean. But yeah, the book in a sense fingers all of us. As, as citizens for being ultimately responsible, because frankly, I don't have any confidence that uh, Washington uh, is going to behave with anything other than the sort of uh, cynical hypocrisy that we see ongoing uh, today. So, with regard to the relationship between the military and 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 the rest of us, or as with regard to any number of other issues, if the if the people don't care enough to rise up and demand change, then change isn't going to isn't going to happen. Uh, it's uh, and and you know the whole government shutdown thing. I think is emblematic of of that larger problem. I think the government shutdown, uh, in, in in some ways, is is a good thing just to make people aware of of uh, what government does uh, and, and doesn't do when they see certain things closing and and certain people not going yeah. to work and and being affected by it. But it's it, it should never take that. Just like it shouldn't take. You know, wars to make America understand uh, the cost of wars to uh, specifically those soldiers and their families, which is what less than one percent of Americans. But the bottom line, I as I see it, as I've always seen it, is that we're going to continue to have all of these problems if people don't if people don't see a direct cost to themselves. Well, I think yes, and and that's why the book, uh, in in addition to trying to. Uh detail what, what I think is a problem. It does try to offer a solution, and the solution is to reconstitute that tradition of the citizen-soldier, to re-engage, to have the people re-engage with their military and re-engage with war when wars must be fought. And, you know, people say, oh, you must be in favor of the draft. And the book says, well, the draft is one option, but it's probably not politically plausible. So what I'm suggesting instead, and the idea is by no means original with me, uh, is a program of national service. And the distinction here is, you know, the draft takes a few young people and forces them to serve in the military. A program of national service says that all young people, let's say at age 18, will owe a term of service to, to country and, and or community with some of those young people serving in the military and all the rest serving in other capacities. So everybody will serve. So I think that would change the composition of the military itself in ways that would uh, help close the gap between the military and society. And I think as a bonus, it might also, in a sense, enrich our concept of citizenship to make make the point that citizenship is not simply about 
uh, claiming rights and exercising prerogatives, but citizenship entails obligations. We owe something to the country as, as, as part of the price of being citizens here. But I would argue that we we want uh, something for nothing all of the time. That's why we have these major, major debates about simply you know paying taxes and who to. And you say that you don't think the draft would necessarily be politically possible. I have a hard time believing your solution, which I support and would vote for, of national service would be politically possible. I think uh, you know in in the present moment you're exactly right. And so this is this would have to be in a sense a a long term effort. Now, what I would like to see, for example. I mean, President Obama's in his second term. He's never going to run again. Uh, in many respects, his his uh, authority and standing are dwindling with each passing day as right. the second term runs out. But he's the president. He could create a presidential commission on national service, to a, a, a group of people who would study this idea, you know, weigh the pros and cons, and in studying it would, in effect, uh, educate the American people as to whether or not national service might be a good thing to do. Now, I'm not trying to tell you a presidential commission would, you know, flip public opinion, but I think that's the kind of concrete step that could be taken to begin to move toward, to create a consensus, a first step toward creating a consensus in national service. But you're right. Uh, if somebody just said, hey, let's vote on it today, it, would, it wouldn't pass, uh, because, we, because as citizens, so many of us uh, do uh, uh, reject the notion that there's any obligation other than to make sure that we pay taxes by April 15th. Yeah, my wife can't even get me to take the trash out. But but I would <laughs> but I would still support. I mean, something like this for other people, not me, not my not my children. My children wouldn't. Have, but I want to send other children to do national service. Well, that's you know, I was on a TV program uh, not too long ago, and this issue came up, and the and the. The people in the audience, when I said National Service Day, all, all applauded. And then the host looked at the audience and he said, okay, raise your hand if you're going to sign up. And there was silence. <laughs> what show is that? It was Colbert. That's hilarious. Yeah. I used to I, – I warmed up that audience every night for oh, six yeah? years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wish I was there – still there when you were there. That we finally uh, would have gotten to meet in person. Uh, uh, we're talking to Professor Andrew Basevich, who uh, is a Vietnam veteran and former Army colonel and currently professor of international relations at history uh, of history at uh, Boston University. And he's an author. His new book is Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. And it's a really important book, and I really, really think you should get it. Uh, buy it. Go to library. Whatever you got to do. Uh, he doesn't write books to get rich, but they certainly are very important now. You tell us about the Boston Red Sox game you attended and what you witnessed there and why did it, how it affected you. Well, this is the prologue of the book, and uh, it recounts uh, a performance, uh, really, uh, that occurred on Independence Day at Fenway Park in, in 2011. And I think it's not atypical for what happens at public events, in particular uh, sporting events, that there has to be some patriotic display before the game begins. And the patriotic display is designed uh, to uh, pay respects to the troops and, quite frankly, to make the audience feel good about themselves by paying, by, by paying respect to the troops. And this right. is a particularly grandiose one, you know, flyover of jets, uh, color guard, uh, troops arrayed across the uh, warning track of the outfield, big uh, uh, stars and stripes displayed over the green monster, you know, the left field wall at, uh, at Fenway. Uh, and the the highlight, the centerpiece of the event was that 
family <clears throat> was summoned out into the middle of the infield and asked to look at the jumbotron. And on the jumbotron appeared uh, a video, uh, seemingly live, of their daughter, a sailor, uh, serving on an aircraft carrier uh, off the coast of Afghanistan. And the daughter said, you know, shout out to my friends, go Red Sox, I wish I were there, and the, the crowd cheers. And then suddenly, from underneath uh, the American flag on the left field wall, she appears. Her, her image is still on the jumbotron, but she now appears striding uh, from left field toward the infield. And the, the crowd Im- immediately recognized her and went berserk. The family took a little bit longer to figure out what was going on, but they did, and so they raced out toward her, and everybody embraces, and they come back to the mound, and they threw out the first pitch, <clears throat> and then they're immediately ushered off the field, never to be seen again. And I viewed that as <clears throat> a, a representative of of this fraudulent relationship. This had been a concoction between the Red Sox and the Pentagon to to create a feel-good moment, uh, and it was a feel-good moment that made the Red Sox look good, made the Pentagon look good, make the people in the stands feel good about themselves. But it was, but there was no substance to it. I mean, it was, it was a passing moment, uh, and 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 that's my objection. It's you know, it's okay to say to a, a soldier, "Thank you for your service," but it's not good enough simply to say, "Thank you for your service." There's got to be some something more there. And uh, as others have said, you know. This is a country that's virtually permanently at war, but the people have no skin in the game. You just said a minute ago, it's 1% that bear the burden of service and sacrifice. I think that's wrong. I, th- I, think we, I think as people in a democracy who claim to respect the troops, that this allocation of responsibility, 1%, bear the burden, 99%, just cheer from the sidelines, there's something fundamentally wrong, undemocratic, and I think unworthy of us as a people to allow that arrangement to persist. I think that people uh, don't understand how much these wars have torn apart uh, the families of the veterans who served those wars. And I'm not talking about uh, necessarily and specifically uh, families like yours. Um, our, our guest lost his son in Iraq uh, or, or anybody who lost uh, someone or even a soldier himself or herself who, who lost a limb or severed you know, suffered some uh, horrible injury. I'm not even talking about that. I, I'm also talking about just uh, kids missing their fathers and mothers who are right. away, divorces. Right. Um, right. People don't really, you know, careers sidelined. Right. Uh, people, I think people really have a very, di- a, 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 a real disconnection if they don't, if they're not from or near a military community and most people aren't and don't yes. see these uh, depictions in the media because we see all these guys coming home and surprising their kids at prom or in school and that's that that makes you cry yes. but you don't see this these the, uh, the injuries that you can't see and yes. and I and I and that to me is getting to know those painful things is is how you support the troops and their families yeah, yeah there's a uh, there's another new book out uh, called thank you for your service although the author means the title uh, ironically that chronicles the the, the the aftermath of war, uh, as experienced by a variety of soldiers. The authors, I think his name is David Finkel. He's a Washington Post uh, reporter. And you really, it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's wonderful in the sense it's very disturbing. Uh, but you might want to have him on the show uh, to talk about that book because it gets to the point that you were just making. These wounds that are uh, 
sort of hidden away from the rest of us, uh, but that soldiers and family members end up bearing as a consequence of this. You know, and I'm not, <clears throat> as I've said before, I'm not a peacenik, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm in favor of a strong military, but it's a military that we should cherish, and cherish means only use it when you really need it, because war is such an uncertain enterprise, because war does such evil things, even to our own soldiers, as admirable as they are, and to just sort of casually allow the country to drift into a state of permanent war, which is kind of what we've done, uh, is really a disgrace. I have a listener who's uh, in Afghanistan now and serves at a combat ho- hospital, um, and we were pen pals, um, Professor Bezovich, and, and, and he's telling me about you know working in this hospital and seeing what comes in every day, uh, and mostly it's Afghans, and so you don't hear about it, but... Yeah. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not in combat, but he, I, I ask him, you know, straight up about how he deals with, with all of that. And, and he says, you know, it's, well, listen, Pete, it's not unlike, you know, working in an emergency room. And I would argue that it's very unlike working in an emergency room. Most of the, uh, injuries you see in emergency rooms are illnesses and accidents. They're not, right. they're not injuries suffered because one human did something to another human. And I think that's far more difficult to struggle with. So you don't have to be in combat. You can just be there and witness it. Be away from home uh, is enough. But most, most Americans don't even know that those things are happening. Right, right. I, and, I, I, that's the disgrace. Mm-hmm. How, how have we uh, done in, 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 the, in, in the wars that we've uh, sent our military to fight on our behalf uh, since World War II? Well, I, I think this is another point. I mean, let, let's focus more more specifically on sort of military action in the in the so-called Greater Middle East. You know, where basically since 1980, uh, when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine, the Carter Doctrine said, the "Persian Gulf is a vital U.S. national security interest. We won't let anybody else control it." And at that, Carter didn't understand all this at the time, but basically that touched off a series of U.S. military actions, large and small, uh, that have continued down to the present week when we've done SEAL raids into Libya and, uh, and Somalia, and, uh, in, a, in a continuing effort to try to fix whatever it is that's ailing the Islamic world. People have said we're trying to stabilize the region. Well, guess what? It's not getting more stable as a result of our efforts. Some people have claimed that we're trying to spread democracy in the region. Well, guess what? It's not becoming more democratic. People have said that we need to do these things because somehow we're going to you know, make them like us, reduce the level of anti-Americanism. Well, guess what? Anti-Americanism probably is greater today than it ever was before. So this military enterprise, this, this American war for the greater Middle East that we've been conducting since 1980 isn't working. I mean, we are not winning. Uh, there is no victory in sight, however we define victory. <clears throat> and therefore, it seems to me, it's incumbent upon us. Uh, you know, Washington is not going to do this, but it's incumbent upon us as people to ask, what the hell is the point of the enterprise? I mean, how long is this going to go on? Toward what end? What's, when, when, what, with, with what outcome? Because in the meantime, it is the soldiers who we continually send back again and again to fight this war who suffer the consequences. We're talking to Andrew Bacevich, Professor Andrew Bacevich. The new book is Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. Our military budget is like, what, 15 times the uh, size of the next uh, largest military budget in, in yeah. the world, 10, 15 times, whatever it is. Yeah. What, what, when we talk about our economic problems in Washington, 
Uh, it seems like, you know, one of the, the, the most sacred cows and even more than health care, which I find very strange with all due respect to our military. Uh, I find it strange that people cheer for war but are terrified of affordable health insurance. But nonetheless, uh, seven hundred, you know, seven hundred billion dollars, whatever it is. What, you know, what should our military budget be? What what should our uh, en- enlistment numbers be? How big should our quote standing army be in in a time like the one we live in now, with potentially no conventional uh, threat? Right. I mean, I, I don't th- I don't know if I can. If, you know, if you, if you made me give you a number, I'd probably say it's something like four hundred billion dollars a year. But but the real question is, what should our military do? I mean, what we have taken it for granted, <clears throat> especially since the end of the Cold War, that our military is this instrument of power projection. Do we need to design it to go fight in places like Afghanistan and Iraq? I, I, I question that. I mean, we should, our military works best when it defends the country and defends vital interests. We could have an argument about what those vital interests are, but, but when it defends, not, our military is, is not effective. The record shows uh, when when we use it as we have since the end of the Cold War, with an expectation that we can reach out and and change the way Afghans live, or change the way Iraqis live, or w- the way Libyans live, or the way Somalis uh, live. So the, the the big question I think is, what do we want our military to do? Mm. And once we answer that question, then you get to a series of subordinate questions. Well, okay, then then how big does it need to be? What capabilities does it need to possess? And you ultimately then get to a bottom line that says, and here's how much it's going to cost. Uh, but but the big question is, what do we want our military to do? Well, the other and, – and it also raises the question that when we send our military to uh, perform duties that it is not equipped to, trained to, or, or should have the purpose to, uh, to, to, to do, what does it do to the morale of the military, to the reputation of the military? Because – Many of the conflicts that we send our military to solve are not conflicts for militaries to, to, to solve at, at any point in time. That's correct. You know, you said at the very outset that my book is not going to make me friends in Washington, and that may well be true. But one of the things that pleased me very much is that I'm already getting a considerable number of, of emails uh, from serving soldiers, people I don't sure. know, who are basically saying, yeah, this is right. You, you, you put your finger on the problem. Uh, so there, I think that there is an, uh, 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 you know, I don't have any data on this, but, but I, I sense that there's a growing awareness within the ranks that to some degree they know they've been sold down the river. They know that they're being abused and, and misused. They know that this we support the troops bumper sticker on the back of the car uh, is essentially dishonesty, symbolism designed for the people who put the bumper sticker on the car rather than designed to do anything that benefits the troops themselves. Uh, you're you're a, a great inspiration to me, uh, along with a handful of other guests that we have on as regularly as we can, simply because you, you, you constantly speak truth to power. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily uh, help uh, careers, whether you're someone in the media, someone in the military, someone in, in, in Wall Street. Uh, or any kind of other whistleblower, when you when when you speak truth to power, uh, it can be frightening simply because uh, it can hurt your income. <laughs> you know, it, 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 well, it can. You know, it I mean, can, I, I live a privileged life, Pete. I'm, I'm, I know that you I'm do, American, but, but I'm an American academic, which I mean is a, I mean, it is a great gig. And but if, there are different if, paths. Yeah, I know. There are if different American paths. Academics can't speak truth, then we are really in deep trouble. 
Well, that's the responsibility of American academics. But you you had another life and another career in the military, and I would imagine there are plenty of people who who are in the military who agree completely with everything you say and write, but they're not going to ever go public with that because they want to they want to move up yeah. in rank, and that's not in, only in the military. That's people right. I know at yeah. CNN. Right. That's people I know in in no. finance. You know, and in, in education, it doesn't matter. No, and, and that's a scary thing to do, to change in the, careers. In the book, I have a brief chapter on that point, that there's a bit of a phenomenon within the military that some senior officer, after he retires, suddenly reveals some great truth. <laughs> and you sort of scratch your head and say, well, why didn't you reveal that truth when you were on active duty and couldn't do something about it? The most recent example is General Stanley McChrystal who has now come out publicly uh, in opposition, critical of the all-volunteer force, saying that the American people need to have skin in the game uh, and that, therefore, we should uh, rethink our military system. And you sort of want to say, hey, General, that's really nice of you to say now, but why didn't you make that point when you were on active duty? Because then it might have made a difference. Well, because it's not about to some people making a difference. It's because I want to put my kids in college. Yeah. Right. You know, my one of my my closest friends these days and and one of my true heroes, I think he's a real life hero as the way I feel about you is is Matthew Ho, who I'm sure you're familiar yes, with. Yes. 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 Who resigned, you know, from yeah. from um the state department when he was yeah. working in Afghanistan and um you know, his 12 years in Afghanistan this week. Jeez. 12 12 years and 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 what have we? You know, he wrote in his letter, thousands of our men and women have returned home with physical and mental wounds, some that will never heal or will only worsen with time. The dead return only in bodily form to be received by families who must be reassured their dead have sacrificed for a purpose worthy of futures lost, love vanished, and promised dreams unkept. I've lost my confidence. Such assurances can any more be made. As such, I submit my resignation. That guy's had a hell of a time since then. Uh, Andrew, uh, yeah, Professor Basevich, I mean, he's suffered from PTSD. He's, he's, he's served in some pretty interesting roles, but, you know, he, he's not he's not a, a wealthy guy. He's not getting, right. you know, and, and uh, I just I have so much respect for people like you and him and 12 years in Afghanistan. And, and those questions that he asked in 2009, um, I still don't think we have good answers for. You are right. He's right. <laughs> um, thanks very much for joining us. And I, I really appreciate always when you do. It's one of the great privileges I have of getting to host this program is having access to people like you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Professor Andrew Basevich, uh, the book Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. It's out now. Boy, is that an important issue. Boy, is that an important subject. Stand up with Pete Dominic. For more Stand Up with Pete Dominic, go to SiriusXM.com slash indie.